Well, good morning, church. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and I have the privilege of bringing you the Word of God this morning. If you're able, can we all stand as we read God's holy and inerrant Word all together? We're continuing our series in Philippians. So let's read Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is the destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it, We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is a reading of God's holy and inerrant word. You may be seated. Last week in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 16, the previous section Pastor will describe our Christian life as being understood as a race. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and the end. And in his explanation, he gave us a cosmic perspective on life, more of the bird's eye view on what this life looks like uh, in straining forward toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of Christ Jesus. Well, today we get a glimpse of how this race is done practically in our everyday living, seeing it more from uh, the ground view. And in this view, it teaches us that we're called to run this race looking around at others and imitating the godly leaders that God has placed around us and also being godly examples that people could follow. Not only that, but we're also to look upward to Christ who helps us to fight worldliness And lastly, for us to look forward, persevering in hope in where he is leading us towards. So that will be the three points that we will will, uh, uncover today. And my prayer is that as we go through the text, that we could all walk away with some practical lessons uh, that we could apply in our lives. So the first thing that we see in verse 17 is this idea of looking around. And Paul does this through the word imitate. He begins in verse 17 to look outward with a call to imitate me and to keep your eyes on those who walk before you. Now, before we dive into what this call entails, let's talk about what's implied in this call. First, notice who he is addressing this call to, to imitate in verse 17. He says, brothers and sisters, which implies that this call is made to a community of people, to a family of faith. Second, this call for imitation suggests that there's a relational, horizontal component to our faith that we often forget or neglect. And I think this is uh, important for us to note, as obvious as it may be, to understand that our faith is lived out in the context of one another. You read texts like John 17, 20, 21. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may know that you have sent me. Jesus himself gives a 
this uh, command in John 13, 34 that many of us may be familiar with, to love one another as I have loved you. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Seems like an obvious point to mention, yet this serves as a basis for what Paul is asking us to do that we need to have in mind. Because you can't look around if you're always looking at yourself. And when you're not thinking about anyone else but yourself, you can't take the responsibility for what Paul is urging the believers to do here in imitating me and follow the example of those that are following Christ faithfully. And the question that I want us to think about is when you come to church on Sundays, or when you think about your faith, what do you think of? Do you just think about me or do you think about us? This one pastor wrote, true holiness may begin between God and the soul, but it finds full expression in community with other people. And this is the context in which our faith is to be lived out. It's growing in our understanding that faith is always lived with and for one another. It's the learning to uh, be better at one anothering. And Paul is encouraging us to do this by imitating him. But what does this mean? What does this look like? Well, before we explain, some of you may be thinking, Paul seems like a pretty arrogant guy asking someone to imitate me. And he might be if we uh, he might be that way if we see this phrase apart from what has been said before and after. If you remember what Pastor Will mentioned in the preceding verses in 3:12, Paul exemplified what humility looks like as he recognized that he was far from being perfect. He has already uh, has given us that straining toward the goal is not about perfection but about progress. In humility, he recognized who he was and what he was called to do. He knew that he was worst of all sinners, but yet at the same time, he knew he, who he was and who he was called to be because of what Christ has done for him. And this kind of self-awareness and understanding is not consistent with someone who is arrogant, someone who is saying, follow me because I have everything figured out. He also says right after the call to imitate me that you are also to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's saying, don't just look at me, but look at other godly examples that God has placed in your life. Look what all of us are pursuing and doing. This is only consistent with his goal and direction and his ambition in life, which was to know Christ and for others to know Christ. One commentary notes, Paul keeps on pursuing his long cherished ambition of perfectly laying hold of Christ, and he wants the Philippians to do the same. He is thus an example in his orientation, attitude, as well as in his behavior. And it's this pursuit that Paul is urging the believers to follow and imitate. But how many of us are confident to ask someone to follow me and to imitate me. I'm sure many of us don't really feel comfortable in doing so. I was, as I was reflecting on this. 
I felt that tension myself, but after a careful examination of why I had a hard time, it became a great counseling opportunity for me to think through why I had reservations about calling someone to follow me. And hopefully this will be a counseling opportunity for us, all of us to kind of question, why is it that I have a hard time asking someone to follow me that Paul is uh, explicitly urging the believers to exercise? Well, some of you may be thinking thoughts like this. Who am I to tell someone to follow me? I mean, I have so many issues that I'm personally dealing with. And there's no way that I'm going to have someone else follow my example because maybe if they follow my example, it'll be all the messiness that I may exemplify in my life. Or some of you may be thinking, but isn't that really for the holy people in the church? Isn't that for the pastors? Isn't that for the leaders, elders? Isn't that what they're supposed to do? I'm just a regular member. I can't say someone, follow me. Or some of you might be thinking, what can I offer to ask someone to follow me? Some of us might have these thoughts or had these thoughts. And we think these thoughts because we think in order for us to have the right to call someone to follow me is to arrive at some sort of high spiritual maturity. Yes, we are striving for that, but the call to imitate is about the direction in which we are saying, follow me as I follow Christ. It's not as if I have everything in order that only then can I be qualified to call someone else to imitate me. Traven Wax describes this dangerous pattern in churches where he writes, the result is a culture increasingly dependent on fewer and fewer people to do the heavy lifting of disciple making. He says the church, by and large, is filled with passive consumers who are unwilling to take spiritual responsibility for the lives of others. Have you noticed Jesus doesn't say in, in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations because you have perfected Christianity. He said, go and make disciples because you know how to do this perfectly and you have finally arrived at the level of spirituality where you could say, go and follow me. No. Why? Because he says, go and make disciples of all nations because I will be with you to the very end of the age. This is the same confidence that Paul has in humility to understand that although I don't have everything figured out, that's okay. Because there's a need, and there's a call. And when God calls me, he will give me all that I need to do all that he has called me to do. And I believe God is calling some of us to take spiritual responsibility of someone else that God has placed in your life. Who might that be? If you can't think of someone, start praying. And I bet God will place people in your life and whom he has called us to take spiritual responsibility for. Well, there's a couple practical ways in which we could exercise this call. First, it's in your household. Second, it's in the context of the church. First, how can this look like in our household? It begins with understanding the important responsibility and role that we have as parents to nurture and disciple our kids. 
And we do this by showing them who Jesus is in our lives. It's teaching the gospel to our kids in such a way that Jesus is honored and glorified, both in our good examples, but also in our bad examples. In our good examples, we teach them what union with Christ looks like when we abide in him, that he will, by our union, help us to pursue godliness and holiness in our ways that our conduct will reflect that. But also in our shortcomings to say, you know what, I don't have it perfectly, but I need Jesus to forgive me. And that my identity is not rooted in my shortcomings, but in who he has called me to be. That's what we get to do as parents, to nurture and disciple our kids in a way that we could point them to the good news of the gospel. We have as responsibility to teach them what it means for us to be a covenant family at home. Joel Beakey encourages the parents that we must teach our children that being outwardly good and obedient falls short of the covenant obligation to God. We must shepherd their hearts. Teach them daily by our words and example that they are called to holiness of heart and holiness of life. It's modeling our lives in such a way that we show them what it's like to love Jesus with our hearts, mind, and souls. How many of us are actively pursuing this kind of discipleship in our household? Second, the call to imitate also extends beyond our household to the church. Now, it's amazing that this was the passage that was assigned to me. And if you guys don't know, my title is Family and Community Life Pastor. And the ministry that I oversee is Community Group and Discipleship Group. And I can't help but to say one of the practical ways that we could live this out this call to imitate one another is in the context of a community group. I'm going to be unapologetically, shamelessly plug in community group ministry. Why? Because I want every single one of us to live out our faith in the context of one another. Some of you may be thinking, but ah, I don't know about community group. Well, join a discipleship group. Uh, if you're not sure about discipleship group, then join a ministry in which you could serve at. The point is, we are called to be plugged into a community. Why? Because it's in that context that we could learn what it means to imitate others in their godly examples that we could follow, as well as we could be an example to those whom could follow our example. And that's exactly what Paul lays out for us. He followed the pattern that Jesus had for him in his life. And it says in Philippians 2, 3, 7, the pattern that shaped Paul's life was do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Don't just see this call as another thing that a pastor is telling you to do, but see it as a gift of God's grace to encourage and spur one another. I believe God is take, challenging some of us to take spiritual responsibility for one another here in this church. You know, one of the core values we hear often 
here at New Life is that we are reformed in theology. And rightly so, because it's through doctrine that shapes how we live. But what about our third core value? Disciples making disciples. And if we're honest, I think our church is very good at knowledge. We love learning things about God and reformed teaching. But how are we applying the things that we are learning? And here... There's a call that Paul is urging all of us to follow. And it's it's done in this context of one another, modeling, discipling one another in such a way that ultimately we are pursuing God in a way that he is honored and glorified. Let's take the challenge to take spiritual responsibility for one another, and we do so by looking around. The second thing we see is to look up, and we see this in verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Well, where do you see this idea of looking up? Well, although there's not an explicit call to look up, like what he did with the call to imitate, uh, but how we fight and guard our hearts against the warning that Paul gives here in verses 18 and 19 can only happen when we look upward to Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, first, let's look at the warnings that Paul gives in these verses. He says, many of whom I have often told you now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's not addressing this to the non-believers, but it's to the people that have gone to church, that are used to going to church and doing the churchy Christian things. He says, look at the way that they are living. And there are three things that he describes to, to characterize uh, the way that they live. First, it reveals their destination, where they're going. It reveals their ambition and the things that they love and worship and their lifestyle and the things that they do. Let's quickly go over the, these warnings. First, it tells us that their destiny, those who are living for themselves, is headed toward eternal destruction. It's a warning against the final judgment that is coming for every single one of us. If you're living for yourself, your end is destruction. In contrast to those that are living for Christ, where there's glory and there's joy that is to come. And this is the destination, whether you are ready or not. Whether you believe it or not, Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And those that believe in Christ and Christ alone will receive glory, and those that do not and are living for themselves, there's eternal judgment that ends in destruction. And brothers and sisters, where do you stand? I believe God, in his gracious reminder, is calling all of us to a life of repentance, to turn away from our old ways of living for ourselves, but instead to live for him and for his glory. Second, their God is their belly and their glory and their shame. And if we're taking this to be a general pattern of those that walk as enemies, then their belly is their appetite and what they hunger and love. It's finding pleasure in fleshly desires, the things of this world that is transient more than God himself. 
It's taking pride in the things that should bring shame that we find glory in. And what might some of these things be that is robbing us of the joy that could only come from treasuring Christ more than anything else? It's asking the question, what do I want in my life right now? Is it money? Is it pleasure? Is it relationship? These are the things that we see the enemies of the cross living their lives for. And lastly, it says that their minds are set on earthly things. And this is a person who's buying into the philosophy that your best life is lived now. Puritan writers were so concerned about this and how the believers can face that tension of living in the world but not of the world. And they use the phrase, love the Lord but use the world to encourage this idea of finding that balance of living in the world without loving the world. And the point was to treasure God more than anything else. And it's what Pastor Will mentioned last week in reordering of our loves. It's not so bad that the good gifts that God has given us are there for us to enjoy, but when those things become the ultimate things, right, that's where we have to reshuffle and reorder some of the loves in our, uh, in our lives. So instead of loving the Lord, many of us can easily use the Lord to love the world. And sadly, we see some of this bleeding even into the Christian mindset and churches where we are not guarding our hearts against worldliness. I didn't know this until I heard another pastor talk about this, but he mentioned that 85% of the bestsellers list on the Christian book retailers, which lists out the top 100 books, this is not on Amazon's top 100 list. This is based on Christian retailers. 85% of the books, you know what the message is about? It's about what God can give you to make your life better now. Christian authors writing about this. It's how God can give you the best life now. And this is what's being promoted in the Christian books all around. Where the message we hear is, use the Lord to get the world. And this is a dangerous pattern that Paul is warning us to think about, do you love the Lord, but use the world? Or do you love, do you use the Lord to get the world? Some of us, I think, think that because we go to church, that we profess some of the things that we profess, that that's enough. But Paul says, check the way that you are living. See if it aligns with the things that you profess because if you're continuing to live your life for, for fleshly desires, the things of this world, then it's a careful examination for us to think where you are in your relationship with God. Ligon Duncan said, worldliness is a matter of the heart. It's a, past, it's a matter of what you love. It's a matter of where you belong. It's a matter of what you want. Worldliness takes control of our mind, our will, our affections. It takes control of our thinking and living, our desiring, and we become captive to a lesser joy than the real and true joy that is only found in treasuring God and his glory in Jesus Christ. And we could do this. We could fight this tendency by looking up to Christ 
and aligning our hearts where we could experience the satisfaction that only Christ can give. Well, lastly, Paul tells us that we are to look forward. And we see this in verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul, as he concludes, is reminding us that we don't belong here on earth, but that we belong to another world. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. This is to a group of believers who took pride in their citizenship. But he says, this is not your world, so stop living like it. Live your life like you're longing for what's to come, not just to enjoy the things here on earth. If you don't think this way, then align your joy to seek the things that are to come that he promises us. You'll live your life believing that this world can give you something that could last and that it could bring you joy if you keep chasing after the things of this world. But this is fool's gold. It may feel like it for a moment, but it won't last I guarantee you, you know why? Because I keep buying shoes over and over again. Some of you guys know I like shoes. And my wife will testify almost every week. I say, honey, this is my last pair. And then you know what happens? I get another shipment. And the newest thing comes out. And it's so tempting, isn't it? When you see something and you enjoy it, you think, this is it. If I just get this, my heart will be fully satisfied, yet it's not going to. And that's what Paul is talking about for those that are living for this world. But his reminder for us is to look forward in what he promises for those that are kingdom citizens in a place that he has store for us. As we conclude... Um, there's a commercial that I want to talk about that came out in 1990s, kind of old. Some of you younger people probably might not know or might know there was a re-release of this commercial. Uh, but there's a commercial called Be Like Mike by Gatorade. And if you're not familiar, some of you older people uh, might know. It goes, sometimes I dream, and now you guys have that in your mind, right? That he is me, right? And it says, you got to see, that's how I dream to be. Da -dun -dun -dun. I dream I move. Okay. Um, I could go on and probably be in your head. It says, I dream I move, I dream I groove like Mike if I could be like Mike. And every single Chicago kid growing up that loved basketball wanted to be like Mike. So what do we do? We got to drink Gatorade like Mike. We got to buy Jordans like Mike. Because if we do, maybe we could play like him. We could be like him. And that's what we dream. So we imitate that. And it shows you, whether you're a basketball fan or not, you recognize that when you see greatness, there's something about you that calls for you to want to imitate that greatness. And you know what that is? That's God's sovereign design for you to be like him. Because there's nothing greater for us to imitate than himself 
in whom he says we are made in his image that we are called to follow. To imitate is what we do as humans. It's in our nature to recognize greatness and want to be that, to follow that. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are we imitating and following in our lives at this moment? Paul says, is it like what he is warning us to stay against in verses 18 and 19, filling our bellies, filling what we desire, determining what we want to do? Or is it Christ and his glory and all that he promises for us? You see, it's not easy to live a Christian life in this twisted, wicked, dark world that we live in. In fact, it's impossible to try to do this on our own. But thank God we don't have to because Christ has given us himself and he has given us each other. I know we don't like to be interactive and be involved in our service, but look around. No one's doing it, I know. It's okay, you guys can look around. This is the body of Christ in which God has given us by his grace to run this race faithfully together. Last week, what Pastor Will started in pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus is what all of us are pursuing together. But it's hard because naturally when our hearts are enticed with the things of this world, we want to stop and we want to follow all the shiny things that we see along the way. But that's where all of us come in, to be that encouragement, to spur and encourage and remind one another, hey, let's remember who we are. We're kingdom citizens. We're not made for this world. So don't settle for this world as if we're made for this world, but let's long for what's to come. And so we have an opportunity to do that. So take this as an opportunity for all of us to take Paul's encouragement as a personal call to think about someone whom we could imitate, if there's someone like that, that God is placing in your life, but also whom someone could imitate. We accomplish this pursuing and finishing this race by looking around at those who are running the race with you before you, behind you, so that we might press on for the prize of God's upper call in Christ Jesus. So stand firm in the Lord, brothers and sisters. May we run joyfully in knowing Christ and making him known be the pursuit and goal for our joy and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a amazing responsibility and call that you have given us to run this race, not out of our own strength, but with the grace that you supply. And not only do you give us this grace just for our own, but you give us this grace so that we could be an encouragement to someone else in this community who might be struggling, who might be losing hope, who might be discouraged. 
but use us to be that shining light to those whom you place in our lives so that together as we pursue this call that you have given us by your grace, that we could run this race faithfully for your glory. So we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.